morning, everybody. Let's get started. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Uh, if you have your outline, we're on the back side, and I want to finish this up today, hopefully finish up the chapter, so we can end the year at the end of a chapter and begin the new year with a new chapter. I think it was 2013 in January that we started this study, so we're moving into the third year, starting uh, next week, so praise God, we're not even, we're basically, if we finish up chapter 11, we're halfway through the book, so <laughs> hopefully the Lord will come back for His people, for His church before we finished, and we can finish and let Him teach, let Him teach. Alright, I just want to, uh, we're in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, and this is the introduction of the seventh, trump, or the seventh angel that blows the seventh trumpet. It's the seventh trumpet judgment. The seventh trumpet unleashes, we'll find later, the seven vile judgments of God's wrath. And so the seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments. The seven trumpets are the seventh seal judgment. This goes all the way back to Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth, being worthy to open the scroll in heaven. A worship service in heaven. He alone was worthy to open the title deed of the earth. And as He opens and breaks the seals, judgment falls. Now we're moving toward the end of the seventh seal judgment, at which time the title deed is laid open plain. And the Lamb can come and take possession of what He actually purchased at the cross. There are some today that teach Jesus Christ is reigning now and that His millennial reign as described in the Scriptures is only through the hearts of His people. That there is no uh, physical, visible reign over the earth and that because the Gospel is spreading... We're in the millennium and things are going to usher in good and peace and men are the instruments whereby the golden age comes so that we usher in the new heavens and the new earth, not Christ Himself. That's Roman Catholic theology. It's new age theology and it's dangerous theology. There's a lot of Christians, people that love the Lord and preach the gospel who hold to an allegorical interpretation of these things. They don't take the scriptures literally. They don't believe that God's promises to Israel are literal and that the church is somehow some new spiritual Israel and that all of these things, some of them uh, would teach that these things we're reading about were actually fulfilled in the past or that they're a cosmic picture of all of human history. They're not literal physical events. Well, we don't, I don't teach that. I believe when the plain sense in the Scriptures... It's common sense, then we don't need to look for any other sense. And a text or a scripture passage without a context is a proof text for a pretext. In other words, a text without considering its context and the rest of the context of scripture is just your cherry-picked proof for, dece for deceiving theology or for a lie. That's what a pretext is. So everything has a context and we know and understand and preach that when Jesus came the first time, we use apologetics, and we do it all the time when we share the gospel. When He came the first time, He fulfilled prophecies literally. 
When the prophet said that he would be born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem was a literal village about seven miles from Jerusalem. And unlike the cities and towns in the Book of Mormon, Beth- Bethlehem actually exists. It's still there today. Um, it was a literal village. It wasn't a symbolic picture of a farming community. Okay, when, when it said that Jesus would be born of a virgin, that was a literal virgin. One who had not known a man. When it said that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, he rode on a donkey. He didn't ride on a, you know, coming in, the donkey was a symbol of the oppressed throughout all the ages and an animal that's not able to defend itself. But he came to, to defend those who couldn't defend themselves. It was a little donkey. And no one would argue with that. Even those that would claim all of these things that His second coming are symbolic. But if we're going to be consistent and we appeal to the authenticity of the Scriptures because of Christ's literal fulfillment of the prophecies concerning His first coming, how can we do any different with His second coming? Especially in the Old Testament when often the first coming and the second coming are prophesied together. And there's that great valley of the church age. Remember the perspective of the prophets we talked about? Looking across, I can look from my backyard and I can see mountain ranges. I can see Table Rock, I can see on a clear day, maybe as far as the Smokies, Grandfather Mountain, Mount Mitchell, but it looks like one big mountain, bunch of mountains to me. From my perspective, I don't see the valley that is between the blacks and the balsams. I don't see that. I don't see the valley between south mountains and the other ranges of the Appalachians. I just see a bunch of mountains. That's the perspective of the Old Testament prophets. But these things are literal and they progress according to an orderly timeline in Revelation and from time to time we have parentheses that give us a picture of what's going on behind the scenes. Okay, We've just come out of some of that uh, in Revelation 11 concerning God's two ordained witnesses, literal street preachers, not symbolic philosophies. A literal tribulation <laughs> temple, not some philosophy or symbol. And now we're introducing the seventh trumpet. So the chronology is moving along. This is a worship service in heaven. We already had one of those in Revelation 4 and 5 when that lamb was given the scroll. In Revelation 8, at the opening of the seventh seal, we have another worship service in heaven. A more meditative service where there's silence in heaven. And now with the, uh, the, the, the blowing or the introduction of the seventh trumpet, we have a third worship service. And we talked about how this worship service in chapter 11 is exactly the same service we're going to see in chapter 15. So when we get to the end of chapter 11, you go over to chapter 15, verse 8, in terms of chronology. Everything that's between here and chapter 15, verse 8 is more parenthesis, describing the major players, the major characters in this period of tribulation. So I feel like we need to summarize just a bit because it's been a couple of weeks. But we got into this worship service in heaven and I explained to you that there are three mentions of choirs or choirs of voices that utter praise during this service. Okay, You have great voices in heaven in verse 15. You have the voices of the 24 elders which represent the church as we saw in chapter 4. In verses 16 and 17, and then we'll have another chorus of verses in verse 19. So we have three choruses and therefore three stanzas to the worship service. And I talked a little bit last last time about the first stanza 
The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's His office. There's a point in time when the kingdoms that are ruled by the prince of the power of the air and the prince of this world actually become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And that's when Christ takes the authority that He has and reigns. Yes, He rules in the hearts of His people. But today, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this world. If Satan had not the authority to offer the kingdoms of this world to Christ when he was tempted in the wilderness, then that was no temptation at all. And Christ wasn't tempted if there was no authority. That authority has been delegated to him, although God governs everything above for the time being. But there's a time when Christ takes that. And the kingdoms we see today actually become his kingdoms. The kingdom of the, the European Union, the kingdoms of the Muslims, the kingdoms of, the, of, of Russia, the kingdom of this country become His. You know, democracy as our framers, as the founders of our country fashioned it, which looks nothing like what we have today, by the way. Uh, what we have today looks a lot more like the experiment that Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin tried to introduce to Russia. But as our founders introduced, quote-unquote, democracy or a constitutional republic to this country, they understood that that was the best man could be apart from the rule of God. A theocracy is the best form of government where God rules and reigns through His representatives who act righteously. We have a picture of that in the Old Testament with Israel. But it fails because man is finite. The next best thing is... A, representative democracy. But even our founders understood that the Constitution only had value if it was protected and governed by a moral people. These things were said and spoken by our founding fathers, but when morality is taken out of the picture, the Constitution isn't worth the paper it's written on, and the freedoms we claim to have cease to exist. I think we see those things before us today because we're not a moral people anymore. But there's coming a day when none of that will matter because the kingdom that Christ brings is superior to anything that this world has ever had. And it won't be ruled by corruption. It will be ruled in righteousness. The second stanza, we have these 24 elders falling on their face and worshiping God. Do we fall upon our faces and worship God ever? Maybe we should. We give thanks to Thee, O Lord God Almighty, verse 17, which art and which was and which art to come, because Thou hast taken to Thee Thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and Thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that Thou shouldest give reward unto Thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear Thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. We see a pattern here in the praise of these elders that represent the church or redeemed men. They praise God for who He is. Who is and was and is to come. I'm reminded that Him, holy, 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 they, they praise and thank God for His eternality. We talked about that. But then they praise Him for what He's done. Thou hast taken to Thee Thy great power and hast reigned. Before this, or heretofore, via the seal and trumpet judgments, we see the Lamb actually taking up His great power and using it. Just like God did in the days of the Exodus. There's no question that God has always possessed the power. 
but there are times at which he actually took the power and used it. And the writers of the Old Testament remember that in the days of the Exodus. Why did God send the particular types of plagues that he sent? Was it just random? No. God was actually attacking the false gods of Egypt and showing that he was superior. It was very well planned out. I saw a preview for a movie that's coming out recently called The Gods of Egypt. It's actually glorifying the pagan gods of Egypt. And it's ridiculous because Almighty God, we can't even talk about Him in a government context anymore, overthrew all of them with the plagues of Egypt. Men would mock and say these things never happened, but yet they'll glorify the pagan gods of Egypt as if it's something to be entertained with at Hollywood. But turn to a couple passages this morning. Matthew, if you look up Jeremiah 32, verses 20 and 21. And Daniel, I'll have you look up Acts 7.36. In the days of the Exodus, God, He always had the power, but He took it up and used it. And the Scriptures recall that. Go ahead. Yeah, Jeremiah 32, 20 and 21. Which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and hath made thee a name as at this day. And hast brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm and with great terror. Did God rule and reign over the earth prior to the Exodus? Did he have the power? Yeah, he created the world. What did he do with the Exodus? He took his great power and used it. Signs and wonders and mighty deeds throughout the whole earth that Israel was talking about Years and years and years later, centuries later, Jeremiah writes about it in the prophets. It was a point in time in which God took his power and used it. Acts 7.36, this is Stephen preaching to the Jews and giving them a chance to accept Messiah for who he was. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the sea and in the wilderness forty years. So even Stephen, in proving Jesus was Messiah and tracing Israel's history, reminds them that God took power that He possessed and used it through signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So you have Jeremiah the prophet appealing to this in the days of the captivity centuries later. And then you have Stephen appealing to this when he's given the Jews one final chance to repent and accept Messiah. They had the chance. Christ was ready to come back if they accepted Him. He was standing when Peter saw Him. The nation rejected and he sat back down. But we see that God possessed power that was demonstrated in Genesis 1, but during the Exodus, he took it and he used it. You see, there's a difference between having power and actually taking up power. We know that Jesus has power. Everybody knows the Great Commission, go ye into all the world and make disciples or preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded thee, and lo, I am with thee always, even to the end of the world. <coughs> Great commission. But we never pause to read or include verse 18. Verse 18 is the motive that ought to motivate us to carry the gospel into the whole world. Turn to Matthew 28. Verses 19 and 20 is the Great Commission. But look at verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, All power is given me in heaven and in earth. 
That word power means authority as well in the original language. Jesus said, I have all authority. I have all power. Go ye therefore. When we see therefore, as my grandfather used to say, we need to ask, what's it there for? Why should we go? Therefore, because all power and authority is given to Jesus Christ. He has all power and authority. We don't dispute that. But has He taken it and used it in the, in the sense His reign is spoken of in the Old Testament? No. He has power and authority regardless of what the evil and the wicked do. He's shown His power and authority in the lives of His people and in the power of the gospel to transform lives and to go into all the world proving that He will do what He says He's going to do. But as far as taking that power and using it and reigning with it, He didn't take the power that He had. Does anybody question He had the power to call down legions of angels to stop the arrest in the garden? No. Did He take it and use it? He had it, but did He use it? No. He chose not to use the powers that came with His deity when He walked this earth. He did miracles and things to prove that He was the Son of God. But He chose not to use His power to stop what had to be done. Unto this point, sin is allowed to rule uh, over the kingdoms of this world. The people of Christ suffer. Israel is persecuted. Christ has the power. But these worshipers in Revelation speak of, Thou hast taken Thy great power and hast reigned. Can we say that today outside the context of our changed lives and our church bodies? No. Christ hasn't yet taken that power and reigned. But we see this in the book of Revelation just like the Old Testament saints saw what God did in the Exodus. Taking His power and reigning. We know He has the power. Matthew 28, 18. And this ought to motivate us to go to the ends of the earth regardless of what happens. He has the power. But look at Psalm 110, verse 1, the great prophecy of Messiah and His coming kingdom. Matthew 28, 18 says He has the power. Psalm 110, 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Christ is sitting until a point in time when the enemies are made His footstool. He has the power and He's sitting with the power. At a point in time, he stands and he takes up and uses the power. And I think that's what we're seeing in the book of Revelation. And for those who praise God in this worship service, in a sense, it's in the past for what he has done. Because these things began when the Lamb took the scroll in chapter 5 and began to open it. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know how someone who preaches post-millennialism or amillennialism or replacement theology could read this passage in Hebrews and actually believe we're living in the millennial reign. Hebrews chapter 10, 12 and 13. But this man, Jesus, after that he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. One sacrifice. Why do the Catholics continue to sacrifice Him at the Eucharist? That's blasphemy. It's putting the Son of God to open shame. Why do they hang Him on a cross? It's blasphemy. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Period. And sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, the word expecting until His enemies be made His footstool. 
So Christ isn't just sitting at this present time, He's expecting. What does that word mean? That's a, that's a word uh, uh, in, a, in a participle form, an old verb in the original language that means to tarry or to wait. So Christ is sitting and He's waiting. He's waiting to take it and to use it. So all of these things being spoken of are going to literally take place at a point in time yet future. If Christ is ruling and reigning and we're in the millennium now, then this passage makes no sense. Christ is expecting, just as we are told to do, to tarry, to wait for His coming, to follow His example. His disciples asked when He went, was prepared to go back to heaven, Lord, at this time will You restore again the kingdom to Israel? Jesus didn't say, no, nah, that's all allegorical, guys. It's spiritual. The kingdom of God is within you. He didn't say that. He said, it's not for you to know the specific time and the specific moment that God has put in His power. You go and be my witnesses. The fact that I have all power and authority ought to motivate you to go. I'll come take it and use it in my time, in the time the Father has set. And here we are in Revelation chapter 11 and we have the church represented by these elders actually praising God for, or praising God, the Lamb for taking to Him His great power and reigning. This began to happen with the seal judgments and through the trumpet judgment. He's no longer expecting at this point, as Hebrews says, but He's taking His power and He's reigning. The replacement <clears throat> theology people would claim that we don't think Christ is reigning and ruling and that we don't think he has the power, and, and, and that's why, you know, and we, we have a very negative view of things. No, we know Christ has the power. That's why we go and preach the gospel. But we also believe he's going to physically take it and use it, just like God did in the days of the Exodus. From this revelation service perspective, what has been done, they praise God for who he is. Now they're praising him for what he has done or what has been done. Because this process started when the seven seal book was opened back in Revelation chapter 5. The completion of it's yet future, but it's spoken of as in the past because it's as good as done. Sometimes we see this in the New Testament. We call it a futuristic aorist in the Greek language. I know you'll never remember that. You don't need to. It's not important. It's where the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke of a future event as if it's in the past because it's as good as done. One of the best examples of this is in Romans chapter 8 where Paul, Paul speaking of our salvation, said, whom God justified, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, we're justified. That means the judge declares us to be righteous based on the sacrifice of Christ. Whom He justified, past tense, He also glorified. Glorification is when we're in the presence of the Lord and when we receive our resurrection bodies at the rapture. But Paul speaks of it in the past tense because if we've been saved, those things are as good as done. This process of taking the power started with the scroll. And what's yet to come is as good as done. So those in heaven worship and praise God as if it's in the past. Praising Him for what He has done. And then verse 18, they praise Him for what He will do. And the nations were angry, and Thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. 
And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and grace, and shouldest destroy them that destroy the earth. What is God going to do? They praise Him for these things. We shouldn't wait for God to do something to praise Him and thank Him. Maybe we should praise Him and thank Him for the things we're asking Him to do in our lives from faith. Praising Him as if He's already done it. We have a pattern here. Those that represent us as the church are praising God for who He is. They're thanking Him for what He's done. They're praising Him for what He's going to do. Maybe that should be our model of prayer. Before we start asking you know, Brother James taught us that we should pray for others before we pray for ourselves. And when he learned that, he saw God supply in his life. But let's make praise a part of our prayer. Praise God before we ask Him for anything. That's a good pattern. These patterns are here for us to follow. Practical. Not in a legalistic way. You can, you can say mantras all day long and it doesn't get any higher than this roof if your heart's not right. Religion repeats mantras. Christians can come to God because of Christ and speak to Him in their own words and praise Him and thank Him and ask Him. What is God going to do? What can we be confident of? This chorus of praise reminds us that God is going to judge the dead. Revelation 20 is going to talk about this. That death and hell were raised up and judged and then cast into a lake of fire. You see, when you die, if a person dies and their spirit goes to hell, lifting up their eyes in torments like the rich man in that picture Jesus gave, they're just in a holding cell. Hell is just a holding cell. It's like the county jail. You're awaiting trial. You haven't even been judged yet. The lake of fire is an eternal hell. It's the state pen, per, per se. Death and hell are raised, and the sea gives up its dead. Given a body, a resurrection unto damnation, uh, Daniel calls it. And they're judged according to their works and cast into a lake of fire. An eternal burning that's a sacrifice to, the, to God. A, a praise of His righteousness. An eternal burning. We know God's going to judge the dead. And they praise Him for this. We often talk about it as, oh, you know, people. We don't even want to admit people go to hell. Somebody we know dies, we've got to convince ourselves they were saved because we don't even want to deal with the consequences of their not. But these saints were praising God that He would judge the dead and the wicked. That was cause to praise God. Praise God the wicked are cast into hell for all eternity. Praise God there's no wicked in eternity. I praise God for that. And if you've heard the gospel and you reject it and you end up in hell, then that's your problem. It's not mine for eternity. I love you enough to tell you the truth. But when the day comes and the wicked that deny Christ, that don't want His name anywhere around in this nation today, are judged, then the righteous will applaud because God's righteous. And I make no apology for those words. God is going to judge the dead and these people saw reason to praise Him for it. What else is He going to do? He's going to reward the righteous. We can praise God for that. Who are the righteous mentioned here? Thy servants, the prophets, the saints, and them that fear their name. I think what we have here is a subtle reference to the three categories of the righteous that have existed throughout all of history. Who were the prophets? The Old Testament saints. 
Those that feared God from Adam all the way to the coming of Christ. The prophets. They were all prophets. They declared who the true God was. And then God's going to reward the saints. Who are the saints? The New Testament church. That's what we're a part of. And then He's going to reward those that fear His name. Who are they? Those are the tribulation saints. Those are the people that have never heard the Gospel clearly. And after the church is taken out, God raises up Jewish witnesses to declare His name. And people of all tribes and tongues and nations will fear that name. They'll pay for it with their lives, but they too will be rewarded in eternity. So we have subtle reference here to the three categories of the righteous. The Old Testament saint, the New Testament church, and the tribulation saint. And friends, no man's ever been made righteous apart from faith. No dispensationalist has ever taught that an Old Testament saint was saved in a different way than a New Testament. It's a perspective of time. You are only made right with God by faith. But it's interesting. God's going to reward the righteous. We see this in Daniel chapter 2. Let's read this. He, I mean, Daniel chapter 12, he actually makes reference to the judgment of the dead as well. Um, uh, Daniel chapter 12. Eric, why don't you read that? Daniel 12... Let me, I think I want you to read, uh, let me find it here. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God's going to reward the righteous. They'll shine like the brightness of the sky and like the stars forever, particularly those that turn many others to righteousness. That ought to motivate us to share the gospel and turn people to Christ, that we might shine like the stars forever. God's going to judge the dead. Let's praise Him for it. God's going to reward the righteous. Let's praise Him for it. God's also going to destroy those that destroy the earth. Let me say one more thing about those three categories. We have three categories of the righteous people that have existed at all time, but also we have three ways in which any man that is righteous before God ought to be. So these three things apply to the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the Tribulation saints, but they also should apply to us Completely as a follower of Christ, whether we lived in the Old Testament times, whether we live now, or whether we'll come to Christ in the days of these events. Everyone that is righteous before God is righteous by faith. And it's because God Himself paid the price. But everyone that's righteous is a prophet. A prophet's not a foreteller per se, but a foreteller. Declares truth about God. That ought to be every one of us. In some form or some fashion, we are a prophet. We declare the truth about God, whether it be in a ministry God has called us to, or whether it be in our interactions with everyday people. Every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is a prophet. Every Christian is a witness. Every Christian or every righteous person is also a saint. Okay? The Catholic Church has taken that word and made it as if it's some mystical thing. They decided recently that Mother Teresa is a saint and now you can pray to her. Because they were able to verify that there were a couple of cases since her death where people prayed to her and supposedly were healed. I mean, people pray to the gods of Hinduism and get healed. 
The devil knows how to heal. It's not the same healing that Christ gives. It comes with a price. Christ's healing was unconditional and it was permanent. But saints are those sinners redeemed by grace. We really ought, ought not refer to ourselves as sinners. We're not sinners anymore, friends. We're saints. And man, that'll rile up the Chi Alphas and the, and the Campus Crusade people on campuses when you tell them that. They can't stand it. But Paul did not call the churches he wrote to sinners. He called them saints. Saints are sinners saved by grace. We were saved from our sin and we war with the flesh, but our standing before God is one as of saints. Every righteous one before God is a prophet, is a saint, and is one that fears His name. If you don't fear God, you don't know God. The New Testament church is told by Peter, fear the Lord. That's not an Old Testament doctrine. That's a biblical doctrine. And a characteristic of the last days is there is no fear of God. And the sad thing is there's no fear of God in most churches today. But those to whom God will reward are prophets, saints, and those that fear His name. That ought to characterize us. That ought to be the fruit of our salvation. Then the next thing, as I said, God will do, He will destroy those that destroy the earth. That's an interesting little comment there that gets overlooked a lot. God created this world. God created this environment, and He cares about it. He's a divine environmentalist of sorts. But unlike the worldly environmentalist, God's environment includes humanity. It includes the family. It includes man as the steward to exercise dominion over God's earth. The liberal environmentalist wants to take man out of the equation. God, who loves the earth and cares for it and preserves it, sees humanity as the pinnacle of that creation. What are some things we learn about the environment from the Bible? Well, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that man was given dominion and was told to rule and to reign and exercise stewardship over creation, not to waste it, not to rape it, not to pillage it, not to destroy it. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam was told to dress and keep the garden. Was he told to clear cut it and build a house? Was he told to uh, rape it and pillage it or to sell it off to his descendants? No, he was to dress it and to keep it. He was to take care of it. In Genesis chapter 9, after Moses, I mean not Moses, Noah got off the ark, he was told by God that the animals had been given to him for meat to help sustain him. And that he was to bring forth abundantly. That bringing forth abundantly didn't only refer to him and his family repopulating the earth. It also referred to the animals. He was to act in such a way that he could use it for meat, but it would also cause the animals to again bring forth abundantly. So things would go back to the way God intended it to be. So in other words, God, Moses, I mean, Noah was given permission to eat, but only in a way in which it would allow God's creatures to come back abundantly. Is that the way we do nowadays? No. You know, people trophy hunt. I hate that. I despise it. I hunt 
I shoot with the camera a lot. I don't have a problem with people hunting for meat. I don't have a problem with people shooting animals in Africa because the meat a lot of times is used by the local tribes and things like that. I have no problem with that. But if you just go out to kill for the sake of killing so you can take a big old picture and you don't use what you've taken, shame on you. That's not what God created us to be. He created us to be stewards. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, God says a righteous man regards the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. A righteous man regards the life of the beast. That doesn't mean he puts it on equal footing with a human. Even Jesus said that a man was of more value than many birds. No righteous man puts an animal up here with a human, but he does regard the life of his beast. He does regard it. I mean, even, you know, the Native Americans were pagans, but they had a better understanding of stewardship in some ways. I mean, they understood the need to hunt and to kill, but they valued the life of the beast and understood that it was being done to preserve them, and they didn't do it wantonly. It was the white man that came in and erased the bison from the plains here because it was just wanton. No regard for life whatsoever. And when you don't regard life in the animal world, it won't be very long before you don't regard life in the human world. You know, when you see a kid that gets pleasure of taking a hammer around a neighborhood and killing a dog or feeding the antifreeze to cats so they'll die, when a kid gets pleasure, watch out. That kid needs to have his beat beat behind a woodshed because that same kid will grow up and not have any regard for human life. It's a scary thing. In Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 65, we have a glimpse of the millennial kingdom under Christ. And God saw fit to reveal in those glimpses that He values creatures. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The the wolf will eat grass like the ox. The children will play with snakes and put their hands in the dens of the spiders and no one will get hurt. That's the kingdom that's coming. And God values the creatures enough to make them be a part of the kingdom. That doesn't mean when your dog dies, it'll be in heaven. But there'll be dogs and creatures that God has made. Animals don't have a soul and a spirit like men. But the creatures themselves, we're to be stewards of them. God values them enough to include them in His kingdom. The book of Job tells us that the creatures and the environment and nature, they declare God's power and wisdom. The problem with the pagan is he worships the creature more than the Creator instead of seeing the creation as a witness to God's power and wisdom. Why would we destroy a witness to God wantonly? Psalm 36, verse 6. Let's see what God has to say here. Some of these are worth reading. Psalm 36, verse 6 says, Thy righteousness is like the great mountain." Thy judgments are a great deep. So God's glimpses of God's righteousness and judgment are seen in the mountains and the great deep. O Lord, Thou preservest man and beast. God preserves these things. Nehemiah 9.6 tells us God preservest all things. He doesn't just, didn't just create, He preserves them. Man can't destroy the earth completely. God won't allow it. Just like man couldn't build a tower to heaven, he could only get so far. 
We talk about, oh man, you know, these nations are going to get these nuclear missiles and we're going to destroy the world. No, not unless God's, God won't allow it. He'll stop it. He'll destroy it. He's the only one that will destroy the present creation. Not men. And it will be by fire. Not by a flood. Psalm, chapter, or Psalm 50 verses 10 and 11. Listen to what God says about the creatures. Or, or 10, 11, 10 and 11. For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. God knows the creatures. They're, they're His. What would happen if the king... There, there's a, um, an interesting place in western Nepal. It's these rolling hills that are, that, are, that are barren trees. And it's real beautiful. And it was a place where the king used to keep his horses years ago. And the Nepali king would go out there and ride his horses and they were kept there and stabled there. What do you think would happen to villagers if they decided to just walk in there and steal some of those horses and kill them and eat them for food? Think that would be okay? No. That'd be big time trouble. Why do we think it's okay to just wantonly destroy God's creatures and not use them for the purposes that He gave them to us to use them for? It says when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1, He was with the wild beast. Jesus was with the animals. They came to Him in those moments. They were a source of comfort to Him in that time when He was tempted 40 days and 40 nights. God calls us to stewardship and care. Not raping, pillaging, and greed. God's going to destroy those that destroy the earth. God's going to destroy those who waste His resources. God's going to destroy the, those who wantonly kill for no purpose and have no value of life. God's going to destroy those that destroy the earth. He's going to destroy the corporations that... that uh, 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 what's the word here? Clear-cut for greed and destroy the witness of Himself. He's going to destroy it. But you know what an important part of the earth also is? Not just the trees, not just the mountains and the sea and the fishes and the birds and the animals. A very important part of God's creation is the family. God created the family. Male and female, He created them and told them to bring forth and have children. When you destroy the family, you destroy the earth. And when you destroy the earth, God will destroy you. You see, God's environmentalism sees the family as important. So when those that promote homosexual marriage to destroy the family, God will destroy you. God will destroy all homosexuals in a lake of fire because their agenda destroys the earth. When you murder the unborn, you destroy the family. You destroy the earth and God will destroy you. <coughs> So we act like failing to recycle or shooting a deer to eat its meat is such a terrible crime and yet we don't think there's anything wrong with slaughtering an unborn baby or with a man and a man getting married and adopting children. God sees these things as wrong. And because man was given stewardship, when the steward destroys his ability to steward by destroying the building block in which he exists, God will destroy him. God hates homosexuality. He hates gay marriage. There's no such thing. He hates abortion. 
And these things destroy the earth, they destroy our society, and they destroy the world. And God will destroy those that destroy the earth. I think about a couple of things in history. You know, I, I think uh, most of these so-called environmentalist wackos are pagans that worship the creature more than the Creator. But I'm thankful someone stood up in time to protect things that we can enjoy today. If there weren't people that stood up and spoke out, there would be no redwood trees left in California. Man and the companies literally raped the California coastline. I lived out there, I know. And cut those things down left and right. And what remains is just a small part of what was there. And some of these trees are older than our nation. And yet man had no regard whatsoever. doesn't mean they weren't there to be used, but they were to be used with stewardship. Take what you need and leave the rest. But man was full of greed raped and pillaged the coast of California. And if people hadn't stood up, there wouldn't be Muir Woods. There wouldn't be Redwood National Park and Redwood State Park, and we wouldn't even know what they look like. Yeah, they've planted Redwood trees, and you can see some of them in downtown San Francisco, but they're not very big because it takes a long time. There was a bird that used to live in North America called the passenger pigeon. It says It's estimated that at times there were three to five billion of these birds. They could travel up to 60 miles an hour. And when their flocks would fly through, eyewitnesses would claim that the sky was literally blackened. Sometimes for long periods of time as the flock flew through. The last passenger pigeon, it is believed, died on September 1st, 1914 at the Cincinnati Zoo. Her name was Martha. And I think the carcass of this bird has actually been stuffed and can be looked at in the Smithsonian. But why did the passenger pigeon go extinct? Why don't we have the great privilege of watching these birds flock and migrate like people did in America a hundred years ago? Because man was wasteful. Man was greedy. They used to shoot these things for sport. They used to fill cans full of nails and stuff and just launch them up in the air and just throw in metal everywhere to just kill these birds for sport. No purpose whatsoever. And now they're extinct. That's wicked. That's wicked. Look at what man did to the buffalo. I mean, they're a great source of meat to be used with stewardship, but the plains were literally covered with them as far as the eyes could see in the 1800s. And men used to just ride trains and shoot them. Just shoot them for sport, like a video game. And leave them to die and rot there in the plains. Wicked. And now there's barely any of them left. That's what man does. And now, because we had no regard for the beast, we have no regard for humanity in our society. We don't think there's anything wrong with a man and a man getting married and adopting a child and ruining the family. We don't think that'll damage the child at all. We don't think there's anything wrong with killing a baby in its mother's womb. A race of people, the black race doesn't even consider, and I don't even like the word race because there's a human race. You know, that's an evolutionary term. There's one race. We're all humans. So it's not a black race and a white race. That's a load of garbage. That's uh, evolution speak. But black people don't even seem to mind that the great majority of abortions are little black babies. And when you consider the numbers that are aborted versus the population growth of the black people, 
Sooner or later, you're going to have a problem. You've got the extinction of a people going, going on. And that's exactly what the uh, forefathers of the pro-abortion movement wanted. They wanted to destroy the black people from this earth. Read their racist statements. They followed in the footsteps of the Nazis, but yet we're so blind we don't value human life enough to see it. Destroying the family, destroying the little babies, these things destroy the earth. It's sad that Christians have missed the boat on this issue. It should be a means to glorify and proclaim the Creator, but it was picked up by pagans who worshipped the creature more than the Creator. There's a difference between godly stewardship and pagan idolatry. Most of what is environmentalism, the global warming crowd today, doesn't recognize a creator. It's pagan idolatry. What we're called to is godly stewardship. Godly stewardship. Romans 1.25 speaks out against the wickedness that is the environmentalist wacko movement of today says, who changed the truth of God into a lie. They use these things for their own ends. These environmentalists that want to control every aspect of your life are the same ones who fly their private jets just to go 100 miles. They have the huge mansions burning all the electricity way beyond what we as normal individuals could do. They're hypocrites. They change the truth of God into a lie. And worship and serve the creature more than the Creator. What God calls us to is godly stewardship that acknowledges the Creator. We preserve because God preserves. We have stewardship because God commanded us to. But yet the pagans have picked it up and the church has flushed these things down the toilet. Wicked. But praise God. He will judge the dead. He will reward the righteous. And He will destroy the earth. Verse 19, we actually have in Revelation chapter 11, we have the third stanza. It's three stanzas of worship. We have the heavenly voices. Back in verse 15, we've got the voices praising God of the 24 elders. And now we have the third stanza. Those elders praise God for who He was, what He's done, what He's going to do. And now verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. There were voices. We have a third mention of voices. That makes this the third stanza. What does John see? He sees the temple of God in heaven, and he sees that it's open. This is the exact same scene we're going to see later in chapter 15. This worship service is the prelude. In verse 15, it's the same service. It's from the perspective of the tribulation saints and it's a finale. But in chapter 15, verse 5, John says, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. It's the same scene. We have an open temple. Now there's things to consider here when we have mention of this temple in heaven. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, Moses was told to make the tabernacle and all the instruments of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, he was to make them according to a pattern that he was shown. Moses was shown a pattern of heavenly things and he was to make the earthly replicas according to that pattern. So we know that 
the earthly replicas of the temple in the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and these things and all things were within were according to a heavenly pattern. So they were a picture of something that exists in heaven. In Hebrews, we have a couple of interesting passages. Um, Bob, would you read Hebrews chapter 1? I mean, sorry, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And Jim, if you'll read Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 24. If you guys will just be patient, I definitely want to finish this. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. <laughs> Okay, so we have mentioned here of a true tabernacle in heaven. We have mentioned that the things that were given in the Old Testament were a shadow of heavenly things. And we have reference to what I just said in Exodus. Make these things according to the pattern. So we know these earthly things were a shadow of heavenly things. So here what we have John seeing is the heavenly temple, the true tabernacle of which what was built in Israel was an earthly replica or a picture. This is what he sees in heaven. It makes sense that the heavenly temple, the true tabernacle as described in Hebrews, would be a part of the heavenly worship service. It makes sense. What else does John see? He sees the temple opened and what does he see inside? It says he sees the ark of his or God's testament. That word testament in Greek is the same word as covenant in Hebrew. It's the Ark of the Covenant. John sees an Ark of the Covenant in God's tabernacle. This is again the same scene as chapter 15 because John makes reference to the testimony which is the Ark of the Covenant and the open temple. But when what we see here, is it the actual Ark of the Covenant that disappeared following the Babylonian captivity? Or is it the true Ark? The heavenly pattern. Personally, we've seen the heavenly temple, the true temple. The temple that built, was built on Mount Moriah in Israel didn't disappear and go up to heaven. So John has seen the true tabernacle. It makes sense that what he's seeing is the true Ark. And what was made here on the earth was just a replica. Some have taught that we can't find the ark because God took it back to heaven. And they point to this passage. Well, that, to me, that's not necessarily true. What we're seeing is the heavenly ark. We're seeing the heavenly temple and the heavenly ark, which are the prototypes of the patterns that were made here on earth. 
But because there's reference made here to the Ark of the Covenant, I think it's important that we pause and briefly look at the Ark of the Covenant. What was it? What happened to it? Where is it today? Is it necessary that the Jews possess it to actually rebuild a temple in Jerusalem? Is the Ark of the Covenant important at all? Why did Jesus never even mention it? Will it be used at all in the millennial reign of Christ? I think these things are worth talking about. So I'm not going to go into that today. Let me just finish up the chapter. And next time we'll talk a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant before we go into Revelation chapter 12. Um, so we have the heavenly, uh, the open temple. We have the Ark of God's Testament. And then it says we have voices. These voices, as mentioned, show this to be a third stanza. In, chapter, in verse 15, we have voices in heaven. Verse 16 and 17, voices of the church. Here we have voices with lightnings, thunderings, earthquake, and a great hail. It's interesting when you go back to the other worship services in heaven. In chapter 4 and 5, when the Lamb is presented and He takes the seven-sealed book because He is worthy... It says that lightnings, thunderings, and voices are heard. Then we get to chapter 8, verse 5. At the start of the seven trumpet judgments, the seventh seal is broken. We have lightnings, thunderings, an earthquake, and voices. So an earthquake is added to the fray. This is in that context where the prayers of the saints are coming up before God and the angel goes to the altar of incense and takes coals from the altar and cast it to the earth. It's the start of the seven trumpet judgments. So at the start of the sealed judgments, we had lightnings, thunderings, and voices. At the start of the trumpet judgments, we have lightnings, thunderings, and earthquake, and voices. And now here at the precipice of the vile judgments, we have lightnings, we have thunderings, we have voices, I mean we have lightnings, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail with the voices. Great hail to initiate the seventh trumpet. This shows the fierceness of God's judgment as it crescendos. God's judgment in Revelation crescendos. You play the piano and you see a... It's like a sideways V, like this. That's called crescendo. That means as you play, you get louder and louder and louder. A day crescendo is where the open side is to the left. You get softer and softer and softer. God's judgment in this world as His witness intensifies and as the consummation of all things nears does not day crescendo. It crescendos. The voice gets louder and louder and louder. It's accompanied by lightnings and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. God's judgment is real. And with it, He means business. That's the lesson we can learn here. And it gives God's people cause for rejoicing. In the midst of thunder, lightning, earthquakes, and hail, God's people praise Him for these things. We ought to praise God for judgment that wakes people up. We ought to praise God for judgment that proves He is true. And proves He is right. Turn to Psalm 58, 10, and 11, and I'll end with this today. 
Psalm 58, 10, and 11. This would not be a politically correct verse in most churches today. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Righteous people rejoice when God takes vengeance. They don't take vengeance themselves like the Muslims are told to do by their false devil God and their false devil prophet. Vengeance is God's and it's His to take. But when He takes it, righteous people rejoice. Just like Psalm tells us, a righteous person swears to his own hurt and doesn't go back on his word. It's a questionable person that claims God told him to do something and then change their mind and do something else. That's not what defines a righteous person. But here, righteous rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteousness. Verily, he is a God that judges in the earth. We rejoice because the judgment shows that God is real and that He will reward us. Refrain your voice from weeping as it was written in the prophet Jeremiah, for thy work shall be rewarded and you will come again into the land. We can and should praise and worship our God for His judgment and for His righteous indignation against the wicked and the persecutors of His people. When God unleashes judgment and vengeance against those that persecute His people, whether it's Israel or the church, then we can rejoice. Rejoicing and praising God is not gloating over the wicked. The Bible tells us not to rejoice over our enemy when he falls. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about gloating or rejoicing over the enemy. It's talking about rejoicing and praising God. God's the object of the rejoicing, not the enemy. There's a difference. You understand that, right? We aren't those that gloat because the object of our rejoicing isn't our enemy when he's down. It's God who renders righteous vengeance. And in that sense, the righteous can fall. They can praise God for who He is. You are, you were, you are to come. We can praise Him for what He's done. It's yet future for us, but He has taken His great power and reign. And we can praise Him for what He will do. He will judge the dead. He will destroy those that destroy the earth. And He will reward the righteous. Praise God for those things. So that brings us to the end of chapter 11. Praise God. We're halfway through the book. There's 22 chapters. I still plan to preach an entire chapter in one Sunday before it's over with. So hopefully it'll move a little faster. But next week I want to talk a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant. It's an interesting thing. I learned some things I didn't know when I went to Israel the last time. Uh, And then we'll get into chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the start of another parenthesis that centers around two wonders in heaven. The dragon and the woman. 